So once again, good morning and uh, praise be to God. And it's good to see you all this morning, albeit online. And um, we will continue our study in the whole counsel of God. So I also want to thank Kevin for reading the passages for us from the Holy Scripture and uh, also praying for us as we listen to God's word. So uh, Please give me your undivided attention for the next 45 minutes. I will not take more than that, but we need to understand the last segment of the history of Israel before uh, we get into the intertestamental period or the years of silence, as we call it, but they were not so silent. Ezra and Nehemiah is what we'll be looking at today. But before that, before we move there, uh, let me begin with an illustration as always. The story is told of a cowboy who goes to buy some life insurance from an agent. And the agent asked him if uh, he had any accidents in the past year. And the cowboy immediately replied and said, no, I didn't have any accidents. And the insurance agent was shocked by his response. He said, I had heard that you were in the hospital at least three times last year. Why are you saying that there were no accidents? He said, yes, I was in the hospital because I was kicked by a horse, I was chased by a raging bull, and I was bitten by a snake. And the insurance agent was even more shocked this time with the response, and he asked, weren't they accidents? The cowboy looks at him and says, no, they all had a purpose. They all had a purpose. You see, this cowboy realized that there are no accidents or there is no such thing as an accident. Please have this thought at the back of your minds as we listen to God's word this morning. We've been studying through the whole counsel of God. Uh, what have we learned about the history of Israel so far? Let me summarize for you in a couple of minutes. Let me summarize uh, the story so far here. Let me go uh, in time back to Saul and then move on from there. Saul was anointed Israel's first king and hopes were running high in the nation that things would be well for the nation. But before long, we saw in the narrative that Saul was a failure who led the nation astray. God then chose David as Saul's replacement. Now here was a man after God's own heart and hopes were once again running high in the nation. But David was a sinner as well and so was his son Solomon. And because of Solomon's sin, um, the kingdom was divided into two. 
and uh, soon due to uh, the sin of the people the land was spewing them out of the promised land so the northern kingdom of israel was scattered by the assyrians and the southern kingdom of judah was carried off into exile by the babylonians now judah is in exile right now in babylon the prophet jeremiah had foretold about the captivity and release of judah and its people he specified that the jews would be in captivity in babylon for about 70 years in jeremiah 25 verses 8 through 12. if you look at the passage there that's on the slide you will see that and uh, you will see that uh, highlighted portion of the verse that says that uh, they would be in captivity for about 70 years so they were in captivity for 70 years and at last the time has come for the exiles to return to the promised land the books of ezra and nehemiah which are put together as one book in the hebrew bible trace the history of the jews from their first return from exile which is in 538 bc through a second return by ezra himself in 458 bc to their rebuilding activities and the religious reforms led by both ezra and nehemiah in the mid 5th century bc so this is the entire story you go all the way from 538 bc uh, which is the time of the first return from exile all the way to the mid 430s or even 430 bc so you're covering about uh, almost 130 years when we read the books of ezra and nehemiah there is one theme that is emphasized throughout the books and that is god is faithful god is faithful he keeps his promises by bringing the jews back to the land so they could build their temple build their city and build their lives god is faithful and he keeps his promises by bringing the jews back to the land so that they could build their temple build their city and build their lives we are right now in the time of the persian kingdom babylon is history now as it fell to persia in about 539 bc let me show you a list of uh, the persian monarchs so it'll help us understand the books better uh, you have cyrus the first monarch the first king of uh, persia he is mentioned in, in in the book of ezra and then you have darius the first who is also mentioned in the book uh, of ezra uh, cambyses is not mentioned you have uh, xerxes who is also called ahishwaras mentioned uh, for us in the book of um, in the book of esther and then you have artaxerxes we have in both the books of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. So four kings of Persia are mentioned in these two books. That is Cyrus, Darius I, Xerxes, and uh, Artaxerxes. Okay, so we are looking at uh, the time period when these monarchs reigned over the Persian Empire. Now, what I plan to do now is take us all through a survey of the major sections of these two books in just one flow. I will talk about or I will describe for us what happened in the major sections of these books uh, so we understand the entire story. This is a major narrative, so we must understand the story and what's happening towards the end of these historical books. And then I would like to draw out for us certain applications for our lives. First thing that we need to look at uh, in the return is that there was a first return. 
and the rebuilding of the temple. The first return and the rebuilding of the temple. Look at Ezra chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. In the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver uh, and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So we look at uh, the first section, which is the first return and rebuilding of the temple. Uh, that is in Ezra chapters 1 through 6. So keep your Bibles open here uh, at Ezra chapter 1 and we'll be slowly making our way through all these six chapters. But we'll be brief because we'll have to finish everything in the next 45 minutes. All right. So we're looking at the first return and uh, the rebuilding of the temple in Ezra chapters 1 through 6. So after Cyrus, uh, king of Persia, captured Babylon. He issued a decree releasing the Jews and permitting them to return to their homeland. We just read that. This was in 538 BC. So in the same year, the first group of Jews returned to Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Now there's a slight debate uh, about who's Zerubbabel and who's Sheshbazar. Uh, I'm not getting into the debate. Some scholars say and have concluded that they are the same individual with two different names while others say that they are two different individuals. Uh, I always take it and have taught that they are two different individuals, but it doesn't matter. Uh, that's not the issue we are dealing with right now. What is more important here is that the very presence of Zerubbabel gave hope to this first group of Jews that returned from Babylon. Because he was in the direct line of King David, and because he had been given a position of leadership by the Persians, he was the object of messianic hopes. And Zerubbabel goes on to play an important role in the early restoration period. And for reasons only known to the biblical authors, he simply does not appear anymore in the biblical narrative after the temple was rebuilt. But under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Jeshua, the high priest, there's a variant spelling. It's also He's also called Joshua. It's all the same. So Jeshua, the high priest, uh, these returnees quickly began to restore Jerusalem. They did two things immediately. First thing, they dedicated themselves to reestablishing the forms of worship that God gave them initially. This is in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. If you look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we see that they dedicated themselves to reestablishing their God-given forms of worship. There's a second thing that they did. They began rebuilding the temple, which is the most important component of their national identity. This can be seen in chapter 3, verse 7 through chapter 6, verse 22. So in all of these three chapters, we see that 
we see the work of rebuilding of the temple, which is an important element uh, of their national identity. They were able to lay the foundation for the new temple with a great ceremony in chapter 3. But many people who are old enough to remember the former glory of the first temple, which is Solomon's temple, that was destroyed. They could not see as much glory in this new structure. This was plain by comparison. And many cried in discouragement during the praise ceremony. So the cries of praise and thanksgiving, on the one hand, blended with the cries of disappointment and loss on the other hand. If you see chapter 3 verses 12 and 13, you can read about that. The Jews were unable to finish the temple. Why? Because their resources were insufficient. Number two, the work was hard. Number three, they also experienced fierce opposition at every turn. The Samaritans who were in the north initially offered to assist in the rebuilding activity. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the Jews probably detected some kind of a rebellious motives behind the offer. And so they didn't want to take the offer. They used Cyrus's decree as an excuse to exclude the Samaritans from participating in this work. Now, quite upset about this rejection, the Samaritans proved themselves to be the true enemies of Ju uh, Judah and Benjamin, as uh, chapter 4 terms them, by opposing the work of the Jews. The account of the Samaritan opposition to the Jews that is mentioned for us in chapter 4, verses 6 to 23, Look at chapter 4, verses 6 to 23, please. I'll wait for about 20 seconds for you to turn there. Chapter 4, verses 6 to 23. That section is out of chronological order here. This section is talking about the conflict, conflict that occurred 50 years later. You can see the timeline there that is on the slide. It occurred 50 years later when the Samaritans stopped the Jews from rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. This section has got nothing to do with the temple rebuilding efforts. Now, the author may have inserted it here in order to present the total picture of the conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans during this general period of time that was happening. If you come to, if you come to verse 24, uh, verse 24 pulls the reader back to the difficulties of the rebuilding of the temple a topic that was left off in chapter 4, verse 5. So you have chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, that detail the rebuilding efforts and the opposition that came to the rebuilding of the temple. And then all of a sudden, in verses 6 through 23, the author inserts uh, an incident that happened 50 years later uh, for uh, various literary reasons rather than chronological reasons. So he inserts that just to make sure that the readers understand that there was a general conflict that was going on between Jews and Samaritans during this period. And then in verse 24, he comes back uh, to where he left off in chapter 4, verse 5. Now in chapter uh, chapters 5 and 6, uh, the story concludes about the temple's reconstruction. After laying its foundation stone uh, in 536 BC, the Jews had failed to finish the building due to opposition and hardship. Sixteen years later, the Spirit of God moved the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to inspire the people of God. 
Haggai the prophet, uh, and we'll talk more about him uh, in the next week. Haggai the prophet uh, urged the Jews to pay as much attention to God's house as they did to their own houses. Zechariah encouraged the people with the visions that he saw and sermons that he preached about future blessings if only they would obey God's will. And their ministries motivated Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the people to continue the work. And despite the ongoing opposition from their neighbors, the Jews completed the temple in 516 BC, that is 516 BC. This is the finishing of the second temple, and they reestablished the priests and Levites with a joyful celebration. And you can see that in chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. So that is the first section of uh, these two books, where the return of the first group is mentioned, and also the rebuilding of the temple. We come to the second section now, which is second return under Ezra. Ezra chapters 7 through 10. Second return under Ezra. Ezra chapters 7 through 10. The second section of this book of Ezra uh, narrates for us Ezra's return to Jerusalem and his ministry there. The author obviously has skipped up approximately some 58 years from the construction of the second temple to Ezra's return in 458 BC. So from the time of the finishing of the second temple, which we just saw, to the time of Ezra's return to Jerusalem, there is a span of about 58 years that have passed. We know almost nothing about the restoration community during this period of time. But Ezra want, uh, wants to come back to Jerusalem, and he did. Ezra was a towering figure of this restoration community. Now, his genealogy can be traced in uh, chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. When you look at those five verses, we'll see that his genealogy can be traced all the way back to Aaron, who was the brother of Moses, the first high priest. So he had an impressive heritage. It also validated Ezra's right to function as a scribe, which meant that he was a student and a teacher of the law. He was a student of the law and a teacher of the law, not just somebody who copied the law. He was also a guardian of the Torah of Moses, which means that he continued the traditions that were given in the first five books of Moses, which is the law of God. And the gracious hand of God was upon Ezra because he had devoted himself. Literally, he fixed his heart to the law of God. He was an effective scholar because he sought not just to study, but he sought to do more than just study. He took efforts also to live and teach God's ways to people, live God's ways uh, in front of people and also teach God's ways to people. So in 458 BC, Ezra led a second group of Jews back to Jerusalem from exile in Babylon some 80 years after Zerubbabel's first return. Uh, the, the first return that we talked about was 80 years back, and now in 458 BC, Ezra is bringing a second group of exiles from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Again, God's hand was upon this group of Jews, so they made the trip very quickly, and they made the trip safely as well. We see this in chapter 8. The burning question for the restoration community during this period was how to maintain a distinctive identity in a world that is full of paganism, in a world that is changing. 
how do we how do we maintain a distinctive identity in a world that is changing and a world that is full of paganism with the loss of davidic kingship and national freedom the jews had lost all visible signs of god's blessings so how could little judah maintain a national identity as the people of god in such a vast persian empire now ezra arrives in jerusalem and very soon he hears the report that many in judah including the leadership had intermarried with neighboring peoples who practiced pagan religions he's quite dismayed about it now israel's history graphically illustrates how quickly the faith in israel deteriorated due to interfaith marriages for example if you look at judges chapter 3 you could see that you also can see that in the royal marriages of solomon and ahab ezra led the people of god in public prayer and repentance in in chapter 9 the mixed marriages were not simply a matter of racial purity nor was this legalism he admitted that there were sins and people were guilty of that sin so Ezra's prayer makes it clear that through such marriages, they were repeating the great sins of their ancestors. And these marriages would have to end or the exile would never really be over. And the Jews of the restoration community were in danger of blending into the paganism of the Persian empire. Doing nothing now would have meant the end of God's people. Ezra is moved by deep contrition and the people agreed to radical measures as well in chapter 10. These marriages endangered the covenant community and the revelation of God himself. Extreme and drastic measures were required to prevent the Jewish faith from dissolving and blending into the religious practices of the Persian period. So over a three-month period, the mixed marriages were systematically dissolved in chapter 10. That's the third section that sorry second section that we look at the second return we look at the third return now under nehemiah where nehemiah rebuilds jerusalem's walls now we come to the book of nehemiah which is nehemiah chapters one through six the book of nehemiah begins with the report that the inhabitants of jerusalem were in distress and its walls lay in ruins by 445 bc jerusalem's future was at risk and God's people were in danger. The first six chapters of the book of Nehemiah, they narrate for us the events of Nehemiah's arrival in Jerusalem and his leadership in rebuilding the walls. Nehemiah was an exiled Jew who had risen to a high office in the Persian Empire, just like Daniel and Esther. What was his title? He was called the cupbearer to the king. Uh, specifically, King Artaxerxes I of Persia. So on hearing the news that his people in Jerusalem were still in disgrace, uh, Nehemiah prayed that God would grant him success as he goes and speaks to the king. Artaxerxes permitted him to move to Jerusalem and provided the means and the protection necessary to rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem. Because, says Nehemiah, the gracious hand of my God was upon me the king granted my requests. Although Jerusalem was surrounded by uh, fierce opponents, Nehemiah inspired the people to begin rebuilding the city walls in chapter 2. 
Now we come to Nehemiah chapter 3. Uh, there you see a remarkable list of individuals who shared the responsibilities of the work. Priests led the way and people from all walks of life joined in and made this a true joint effort. The rest of this unit, which is from chapter 4 verse 1 all the way till chapter 6 verse 19, this entire unit narrates for us the difficulties the Jews encountered when they began rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. The problems were both internal and external. The Samaritans under Sanballat and uh, other enemies from among the Ammonites, the Arabs and the Ashdodites, they opposed the work. In other words, Nehemiah had enemies all around him, but he constantly encouraged the people to keep working and praying. Half his crew were involved in construction, while the other half uh, were totally armed for the defense of the city. They, they were ready to defend the city. And his method of dealing with opposition was always prayer followed by appropriate action. His method was dealing with the opposition was always prayer followed by appropriate action. And he always gave the credit of his success to God. Always gave the credit of his success to God. Nehemiah was concerned with more than Jerusalem's physical structures. The city's social problems also threatened to undo God's work among the Jews. We can see that in Nehemiah chapter 5. There was an economic crisis at that time, which had led some Jews into slavery. They had become slaves and others had pledged their property as well to some people. This kind of social injustice would turn the physical rebuilding activity into a futile one. So Nehemiah asked for compassion from the leaders. Deaths were forgiven. Uh, economic stability was restored at that time. And Nehemiah's remarkable leadership is exemplary, especially in chapter 5, if you read that. His ability to lead the people to make hard moral decisions was undoubtedly because of his leadership by example. He led from the front by example. How did he do that? He refused to accept the governor's expense account, which the other governors before him had used. These monies came from the taxes that had caused much of the hardship among the people in the first place. And so he didn't want to use that money for himself. In many ways, Nehemiah provides a beautiful example of Christian stewardship. Now, let me just make one point here and then move on. Some things are legal, but not right for the Christian. Some things are legal, but not right for the Christian. The closer we draw to God, the less we ask what is permissible and the more we think about what pleases God. The closer we draw to God, the less we ask what is permissible and the more we think about what really pleases God. Moving on to Nehemiah chapter 6. The external opponents to Nehemiah's work tried one more approach. You know, if you remember in chapter 4, they began mocking and deriding. Uh, the plans to rebuild the walls. Then they tried to intimidate the builders. Here they attack Nehemiah personally. But when Nehemiah's resolve and devotion prevailed, the walls were completed in only 52 days. I want to read this verse for us. Look at uh, Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15, which is what, uh, which is what uh, Kevin read for us. Chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month uh, Elul 
in 52 days in 52 days so that is the third section where nehemiah also returns and he rebuilds the walls of the city of jerusalem come to the last section here uh, which is ezra and nehemiah's reforms which is in nehemiah chapter 7 through 13. i hope you're following the storyline here nehemiah chapter 7 through 13. so after construction of the city walls uh, of jerusalem this last unit of Nehemiah details the social and the religious reforms undertaken by both Ezra and Nehemiah. Nearly a hundred years after Zerubbabel's first return, the population of Jerusalem was still small. We can see that in chapter 7 of Nehemiah. And to encourage them, Nehemiah felt inspired to register the people by genealogies. You know, it could be a little tedious for us to read chapter 7 for us. But these list of names were an important source of comfort to the original audience. These list of names were an important source of comfort to the original people who were actually going through the situation. Because the list demonstrated to them the continuity with the past. When all seemed lost, when all seemed hopeless, these details prove that God's blessing extended across centuries. God's faithfulness extended across generations. So with God's help, the people had rebuilt the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. And Ezra and Nehemiah recognized that this is the time that is right to renew the covenant. And this unit in chapters 8 through 10 records Ezra's ministry of the word. And it narrates for us one of the most vivid covenant ceremonies in the Bible. There's a dramatic public reading of the law of Moses in chapter 8. And people learned of God's great love, God's faithfulness, and God's commitment to his covenant people. And Ezra's ministry of the word of God had several profound effects on the people. The people responded quickly in reverence and in true worship in both chapters 8 and 9. They revived the ancient customs, uh, like celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 8. And the Levites led the people in confession of their national guilt in chapter 9. And the covenant of God with Israel was re-established as prescribed in the first five books of Moses. All genuine revivals throughout history have been rooted in a renewed interest in God's word. All genuine revivals throughout history have been rooted in a renewed interest in God's word. The remaining part of the book of Nehemiah recounts for us other measures uh, that Nehemiah took to strengthen the people of Jerusalem. The restored city was now able to hold a bigger population. So Nehemiah 11 describes how more citizens were brought to live in there. And it also lists the city's expanded population. In chapter 12, we see a list of priests that highlights for us continuity with the past as well, which was vital for the well-being of the nation. Then um, in chapter 12, once again, which is the climax of Nehemiah's career, we see that there's a great joy and celebration. The people dedicated Jerusalem's restored walls and this great dedication uh, parallels the dedication of the temple that we saw in Ezra, in Ezra chapter 6. And then finally, in Nehemiah chapter 13, we see that other social evils and religious reforms uh, were led by Nehemiah. So this is the four major sections that we see 
in both the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. I hope you follow along in the story. But as I as I read these books and as I look at these two books of Ezra and Nehemiah, I come away thinking that these men, Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah, along with the prophets Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi as well, made a tremendous impact on the community of the returned exiles. They made a tremendous impact on the community of the returned exiles. We look at uh, some of the applications that we can draw from uh, the storyline and the survey of these two books. Uh, I'll keep them very simple. I'll keep them pretty straightforward for all of us to hear and apply to our lives. The first thing that we see is that you and I should never fail to, this, to see the sovereign hand of God in the affairs of our daily lives. Never fail to see the sovereign hand of God in the affairs of our daily lives, even in the mundane things of life. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah portray a God who's sovereign and who's faithful to his covenant promises in spite of the failures and faithfulness, faithlessness of men. You know, Proverbs 21.1 says this. We all know this. Some of us know it by heart. The king's heart in the hand of the Lord is like a river of waters. He turns it wherever he wishes. The truth of this proverb is exemplified in the two books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Both Ezra and Nehemiah recognize Yahweh's ability to bring to pass his will. They recognize Yahweh's ability to bring to pass his will. They also recognize Yahweh's involvement in their own work when they are committed to his plan. Did you hear that? Ezra and Nehemiah recognize Yahweh's involvement in their own work when they are committed to his plan. At every step, when they desire to glorify God in their plans, a door opens for them and they perceive the hand of God. Does Ezra want to go to Jerusalem to teach the law? He seeks permission from the Gentile ruler Artaxerxes. Permission is granted. This is the hand of the Lord upon me, says Ezra. Does Nehemiah want to help reestablish Jerusalem and Judah? He prays that God might allow it. He tells his desires to the king. Permission and even more is granted from the king. And Nehemiah says, it is the gracious hand of my God upon me. It is the God of heaven who moved the heart of Cyrus and who moved the hearts of those who returned under Zerubbabel and who put it into the heart of Nehemiah to act for Jerusalem. It is the same God who protects his people, whether from the perils of a long thousand mile journey that they undertook or from the plotting officials who are enemies of Judah. God is the one who protects his people always. Now I want to share with you a story that uh, really uh, touched me when I read that. This is a story from the 1920s uh, from Russia, where Stalin ordered uh, that all the Bibles be taken away uh, and even believers be killed in Russia. So all these uh, lakhs and lakhs of Bibles were taken away and they were stored and tucked away in a go-down uh, somewhere that was known only to uh, uh, Stalin and his cohorts. So. Uh, the believers were sent to prison and many died because they were called the enemies of the state. Now, only recently, someone mentioned that they knew a warehouse uh, that existed outside a particular town where lakhs and lakhs of Bible had been stored since the time of Stalin. 
And so trucks and trucks were dispatched and several Russians were asked to help to load the Bibles into these trucks. One young man came forward. He was a skeptic, a very hostile person to the Christian faith. He was an agnostic uh, at a university and he only came for the daily uh, for the day's wages because uh, he didn't have money and he wanted some day's wages so he thought he'd help load the bibles into the truck and as they loaded the bibles he wanted to just see why there were so many bibles there and he wanted to steal one bible and so he quickly steals one of them and excuses himself and goes to uh, a secluded place and he opens it to his utter horror and shock to see that on the first page was written the signature of his grandmother who died. She was a believer in Christ. It was her personal Bible. Is it an accident? Absolutely not. What are the odds that you go to you know, a stack that has lakhs and lakhs of Bible and you want to steal one Bible and when you actually steal it, you find it to be your own grandmother's Bible who was a believer in Christ. Never fail to see the sovereign hand of God in the affairs of our daily lives. Never fail to see the sovereign hand of God in the affairs of our daily lives. I don't want to push the point further. You know what I'm talking about. I know what I'm talking about. The second thing that we done here is that you and I must trust God in the midst of opposition, even unrelenting opposition. You and I must trust God in the midst of opposition, even unrelenting opposition. There is much opposition in these books, and we just surveyed that. Enemies try to stop the work on multiple occasions. They trouble the laborers, even hired people to frustrate them. Uh, there was political back and forth, criticism, uh, mocking, and even physical attacks in Nehemiah chapter 4. Hear me, please. When you do something for God, be sure to face opposition. When I do something for God, I can be sure that I will face opposition. You know, today we, we, have, uh, we view conflict, criticism, and any kind of opposition, even a minor opposition or difficulty, as a sure sign from the Lord that we need to leave our church, or quit the ministry, or drop out of leadership, or give up on serving within the body of Christ. We take even the minor, the most minor opposition as a sure sign from God that we need to stop doing what we are doing. I want to read for us a couple of verses, very interesting verses from the New Testament uh, that come to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 8 and 9. Please turn there for me, with me, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 8 and 9. Paul says this, but I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective service has opened to me and there are many adversaries interesting isn't it a wide door of effective service has opened to me and there are many adversaries paul is indicating his desire to stay in ephesus for a while longer before he moves on to macedonia and corinth because he says there's a wide door for effective work that has opened to me and also there are many adversaries. I find this very interesting that Paul would bring these two phrases together. A wide door of effective ministry is open to me. On the one hand, on the other hand, there are many adversaries. 
you know paul clearly has no trouble seeing that a wide door of effective work can exist at the same time and in the same place as many adversaries a wide door of effective ministry can exist at the same time and in the same place as many adversaries in other words paul does not see opposition in the work of ministry as a sure sign from the lord that his work is finished but just the opposite he sees opposition as properly existing alongside a wide open door for ministry in this context at least i wonder humanly speaking at least uh, how many wide open doors we have turned away from in our lives and ministries simply because we took opposition as a sign that it was time for us to move on to something different paul's words here should serve as a helpful reminder to us that the presence of opposition in and of itself now don't get me wrong here please and hear me very clearly the presence of opposition in and of itself is not an indication that our work is finished in the place where we are currently serving in fact just the opposite may be true in many cases god's work and god's word will most definitely produce a certain amount of opposition no matter who we are no matter where we serve it will produce a certain amount of opposition at least it might make some people uncomfortable it will make some people angry and it might even make others rise up in opposition against us it always has been that way and we ought to expect it in our lives and prepare ourselves in advance for it and if you and i are willing to interpret our circumstances in light of our calling if you and i are willing to interpret our circumstances in light of our calling and if you and i are willing to trust god in the midst of opposition even relentless opposition you and i can be of much use for the kingdom trust god in the midst of opposition and i say this to you as sincerely as i say this to myself trust god in the midst of opposition even unrelenting opposition thirdly and lastly make prayer your daily discipline realizing that god acts in response to your prayer i must make prayer a daily discipline realizing that god acts in response to my prayers ezra calls the people to fast and pray for a safe journey and he says god answered our prayer nehemiah calls on god because of his burden for jerusalem and god answered his prayer he prayed regarding the opposition he was receiving and god again answered his prayer when he was afraid he prayed and god gave him courage ezra and nehemiah understood there's nothing you can do until you pray ezra and nehemiah understood there's nothing you can do until you pray they understood the necessity and the importance of prayer for a life of faith I want to share this illustration uh, from the life of uh, hudson taylor and then uh, i'll quickly wrap up when hudson taylor was sailing to china to begin his missionary work his ship was in great danger at one point on the journey the wind had died and the current was carrying them towards sunken reefs uh, which were very close to islands that were inhabited by cannibals they went so close that they could see these cannibals building fires on the shore they tried everything but to no avail in his journal uh, hudson taylor records what happened next 
he says the captain said to him we've done everything that we we could uh, but nothing is working and then uh, Hudson Taylor says as soon as the captain said this to me I had a thought that occurred to me I responded no there is one thing more to be done there are four Christians on board here each of us will retire to our cabins and we'll pray that the Lord will have mercy and immediately give us a breeze for us to float away from here and all the four retired to their cabins they began to pray and uh, and uh, Taylor Hudson Taylor he is confident that God is going to answer his prayer and he goes up to the deck calls the first officer and he says uh, can you let down the sails and the first officer doesn't understand what he's talking about he says what good will that do he said I just prayed to God that he would send a wind for us it is coming immediately please let down the sails within minutes the wind began to blow and, and it carried them safely past the reefs and Hudson Taylor wrote this in his journal and I want to read these three lines for us thus he says God encouraged me before landing on China shores to bring every variety of need to him in prayer so through this incident he says God encouraged me before landing on China shores to bring every variety of need to him in prayer and to expect that he would honor the name of the Lord Jesus and give the help each emergency required and give the help each emergency required he is not saying neither am I saying that every prayer of us will be answered in exactly the way that we want it answered but we must realize that God is sovereign and go to God in dependence on him in prayer the sad thing about us is that we believe that we are capable of accomplishing whatever we want or need on our own and so we rely on ourselves instead of relying on God and we don't pray yes we're incredibly valuable that is true yes we've been created in the image of God that is a stunning reality for us that the Bible talks about but we must never forget that we were created to depend on God as well self-dependence is a sin that stifles our prayer life self-dependence is a sin that stifles our prayer life dr. Billy Graham once said this he said we are to pray in times of adversity lest we become faithless and unbelieving we are to pray in times of prosperity lest we become boastful and pride we are to pray in times of danger lest we become fearful and doubting we are to pray in times of security lest we become self-sufficient my dear brothers and sisters I say this with a burden in my heart let us resolve this morning to spend time in the presence of God in prayer on a daily basis realizing that God acts in response to your prayers and my prayers so three things as applications we saw first one never fail to see the sovereign hand of God in the affairs of our daily lives number two trust God in the midst of opposition even unrelenting opposition Number three, make prayer your daily discipline, realizing that God acts in response to your prayers. So this is a summary of uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, I hope you followed through the storyline uh, and a survey of it. And I also hope that uh, uh, you've connected these applications uh, that we made that have been drawn out of these 
inbox. Thank you for your patience. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we want to thank you for this time. We want to thank you for your word. That detail for us this morning, the events that happened uh, in the time of the Persian Empire. When your promises came true in the life of the nation of Judah, when you promised them that you would discipline them for a period, a period of 70 years, there was an expectation that God is faithful and he will take us back to the land, our land of inheritance that he has given our forefathers. Thank you for your faithfulness, O Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness that shows up every single day of our lives. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. We see, O Lord, that Ezra and Nehemiah, as they went about the daily events of their lives, as they took part in the kingdom work of the restoration of the Jews back to the promised land, they realized that without your help, without your sovereign hand upon them, and in the events that they are involved in, every effort would be futile, O Lord. Help us also today to realize that every waking moment of our lives and go to you in prayer, in dependence on you for everything that we do, especially the work of the kingdom. Help us to realize with greater intensity each new day that we must depend on you, depend on your strength and help us to see everything as a result of the sovereign hand of God acting in history acting in our lives. We want to thank you, O Lord, for the sovereign God that you are. We want to thank you that nothing happens by accident. We want to thank you that you control everything, even nations, even kings. You bring one nation to punish the other and you punish that nation for its own sin as well. You are sovereign. Ultimately, you are the one who judges, sitting on the throne of judgment, and we must bow to you. Help also to realize that you bring about opposition often for our good so that we we must so that we can depend on you more and more we can realize that god can shape our character through this opposition help us to make the right god honoring decisions as we face opposition a lot so that we can be effective in the work of the kingdom just like paul did help us to make the right decisions biblically and led by the spirit we also pray that we would make prayer a daily habit, depending on you for every single thing that we do, O Lord, both as individuals and as a church as well. We want to thank you for this time. We want to thank you for your word and the applications that you gave us. Help us to implement these in our lives to the glory and the honor of your name. And we know, O Lord, that you who began the work of restoration in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will finish everything at his coming, where we'll rejoice in your presence forever and ever. And we want to thank you for that hope. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.